For it was Herod who had sent and seized John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because he had married her. For John had been saying to Herod, It is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. And Herodias had a grudge against him and wanted to put him to death. But she could not, for Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, and he kept him safe. When he heard him, he was greatly perplexed, and yet he heard him gladly. But an opportunity came when Herod, on his birthday, gave a banquet for his nobles and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. For when Herodias' daughter came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his guests. And the king said to the girl, Ask me for whatever you wish, and I will give it to you. And he vowed to her, Whatever you ask me, I will give you, up to half my kingdom. And she went out and said to her mother, For what should I ask? And she said, The head of John the Baptist. And she came in immediately with haste to the king and, and said, <clears throat> and asked, saying, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And the king was exceedingly sorry, but because of his oaths and his guests, he did not want to break his word to her. And immediately the king sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. He went and beheaded him in the prison and brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl. And the girl gave it to her mother. When his disciples heard of it, they came and took his body and laid it in a tomb. Let's pray. Father, uh, the holy history that's recorded here, was written down for our instruction. Uh, these people are examples to us on, upon whom the ends of the ages has come. These events remind us of the power of self-deception, of pleasure and idolatry. They also remind us that you are faithful. Texts like these are one way that you guard us from such temptations. Instruct us now that we might enjoy the earthly benefits of our eternal salvation in Christ Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. Well, one of the songs that made Johnny Cash famous is Ring of Fire. But it wasn't written by Johnny Cash. It was actually written by June Carter. And it was recorded by her sister initially, and then later was recorded by Johnny Cash. But the song was about Johnny Cash. When she penned the words, love is a burning thing, and it makes a fiery ring, bound by wild desire, I fell into a burning ring of fire. She was talking about her own heart, and she was talking about how her own heart was drawn toward this man that she had toured with, Johnny Cash. And Johnny also fell into the burning ring of fire. He didn't just sing about that, but uh, he fell as well. 
And as you look at the lives of uh, these two musicians over almost a decade in the 1960s, what you see is a tale of how lust devoured their families and themselves. Uh, For you see, um, this was one of the things that probably contributed, most likely contributed to to Johnny's addiction and his descent uh, into drug abuse and eventually into the destruction of his marriage because there was always the other woman in his heart. And it contributed to her own divorce as uh, June also struggled with her longing for the man who was not her husband. Lust captivates, but lust also destroys. And as we look at this passage, we're going to see in great detail how lust destroys. But its damage is never contained just to two people. It always spreads like a wildfire consuming a forest. Well, at the end of last week's passage, we heard about uh, how uh, Herod was feeling guilty uh, because he had beheaded John the Baptist, and now we find out why he actually did this. And so the first question that we should answer as we look at this text is, why did Herod behead John anyway? It's a very pertinent question, and it's an important question that Mark wants us to understand going forward in the rest of his gospel. John, as it turns out, had been publicly talking to the king about a problem in the king's life. And I want us to, to keep note of that very fact. He was, public, he was speaking to the king, not simply about the king. You see, uh, John the Baptist was not an unnamed source for the Jerusalem Times in criticism of the king. Uh, John the Baptist didn't go on their version of 60 Minutes, you know, behind the screen with the thing that modifies your voice so no one knows who you really are uh, to somehow criticize the king. John the Baptizer was a man, and he stood up and he spoke to the king. John knew what he was doing. And he knew the risks that this entailed, and yet he did it anyway. And the thing that he said to uh, Herod was, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. Again, this is reiterating the fact that he's speaking to Herod. It's not third person, it's first, it's second person. You It is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. Herod Antipas' marriage violated what we find in Leviticus 18, verse 11, as well as chapter 20, verse 21. Divorce was, uh, or actually the the taking of your brother's wife was not permitted, especially while he was alive, which is the case here. If he had died without an heir, uh, then you're required, they were required under Levitical law to be the Leverite uh, husband, but that had not happened because, well, one, 
Philip was still alive. Uh, two, Philip had a child with Herodias, and so all bets were off on this. And so uh, John is pressing home the reality of the sinfulness of this particular marriage that this man who presumed to be king over the Jews uh, was participating in. Jesus later would probably allude to this in Mark 11 when he says to them, whomever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her, and if, he divorces her, if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. Now, in Judah, it was against the laws of the Jews for a wife to divorce her husband, and so there's an allusion here to Herodias, who, under the Roman law, was free to divorce her husband. But anyway, we're getting slightly ahead of ourselves. The line of Herod is a very interesting line. And uh, we've got a little diagram here, and, and it's, uh, it's a little confusing, uh, actually. Remember, Herod the Great, who starts all of this fun thing, is... The one who tried to kill Jesus shortly after his birth, within the first two years. And so Herod, wanting to defend his throne from what he thought would be someone who would topple him, basically wiped out two years of male children within his realm. That's how wicked he was. But that's not all. In the, in the course of his family tree here, the, we see that because of his wives... Um, Oh, they kind of sort of got over here. They sort of missed these two brothers that go here. Married to the first Marame. One of them is the father of Herodias. Well, after um, sending them into exile for a while, he had them killed. So Herod himself didn't just kill all of these nameless, faceless children uh, within the, the, his realm. He also killed two of his sons because he was afraid that they would try to usurp his throne. And so there, there's a history of cruelty that goes on within this family. Uh, but we see that there are a number of cases uh, where there is sin sexual sin taking place, because you'll notice uh, that she is a granddaughter of Herod the Great. Well, who does she marry? First, she marries Herod Philip, one of her uncles. Incest within the family line. And, and then when Herod Antipas visits his half-brother Philip on a trip to Rome, he meets Herodias. I don't know why he hadn't met her before. Maybe he had. But suddenly they fell into the burning ring of fire. They both had this, this pull and attraction to themselves, to one another rather. And, and so they began this complicated relationship. Now, keep in mind, she is his cousin on one hand and well, niece on another hand because of the very complicated uh, relationships within the line of Herod. So there's a dual blood relationship that already exists between Herod Antipas and Herodias. And yet, 
he convinces her to leave his half-brother and come to be his wife. But of course, he has to send off his wife. And so he promises to do that to, uh, for Herodias. And so um, his first wife, uh, who was from a neighboring country and was the princess of that neighboring country, a, a political marriage meant to bind those two countries together at the suggestion of the Caesar of the day, now creates a political mess because they've fallen into that ring of fire of lust. What a mess, relationally. But we see that Herod, uh, rather Mark's audience in Rome uh, deals with a lot of similar perversions uh, by the powerful in their midst. And so if we go first off, we have Tiberius, who is the Caesar at this time, uh, when they're doing the earthly ministries of John and Jesus. He's uh, Caesar from... 14 to 37, he was not the, well, we see that Richard, not Richard, um, Jeffrey Epstein was not the first person to have an island uh, where perverse things happened uh, because Tiberius had an island himself, an island resort that was infamous for its immorality and its perversity. Tiberius, though Caesar, was a pedophile. He was a rapist. In fact, they had to coin new words and phrases to describe the things that he did. That's how immoral and perverse Tiberius was. If we go to the next Caesar, Caligula, we find a lot of cruelty as well, but because in part we see that Tiberius was, had adopted, oh sorry, brain wrapped around all of these weird relationships, uh, but rather that Caligula was Tiberius's adopted grandson. So Tiber- Tiberius's son adopted Caligula, okay? Good old Cla- uh, Caligula is suspected of poisoning Tiberius, his grandfather, so that he can become Caesar. Very interesting. He had an incestuous relationship with his sisters. He also had sexual relationships with men. And as you might imagine, he was notoriously cruel. Uh, Thankfully for the people of Rome, he only lasted for four years. But if we hit fast forward over a couple of Caesars, uh, we have Nero. Nero from 54 to 68. Nero, who was... uh, in control of the Roman Empire at the time and when Mark's gospel was most likely written, widespread persecution took place under Nero. Sort of like Caligula, he had an incestuous relationship, not with his sisters, but with his mother. But to top that one off, he later had her murdered. So you see how this so twisted and perverse. He was the first Caesar who publicly married another man. He was involved in the murder of his father. He was involved in the murder of his brothers. He was involved in the murder of his wife. His perversity knew no bounds, and neither did his cruelty. 
And so as Mark is writing to the people of Rome, the Christians of Rome, they get Herod. They understand Herod. Because they're living under the same reality themselves. Herod is not just some guy who's way over, uh, you know, over a thousand miles away. They live with their own version of Herod. Filled with cruelty and perversity. And yet, Caesars that claim to be the Son of God. Well, I think any of us who pays any attention to the news recognizes that we live in a society with increasing perversion, particularly amongst the powerful. Uh, We have a candidate who's running for president who is married to another man. Uh, We have a representative in California who resigned from office uh, because um, she had a thruple, polyamory. And, and that was with someone in her office. And she had an affair with another person in her office, which violates the ethical standards of the House of Representatives. And so uh, if she didn't resign, she was going to be kicked out. We have judges who have been accused of doing similar things. Perversity is running rampant, not just in our culture, but particularly amongst our elite and among those who run our country. We almost long for the days of just adultery. I prefer something better than that, though. (coughs) That they, you know, not commit that sin, too. And so it's not something foreign to us. It's really something that's becoming increasingly familiar to us. And so we see that John is jailed because Herodias had a grudge against him and wanted him put to death. And so the problem isn't so much Herod himself in the case of John. The problem really is his wife, Herodias, because she's the one who keeps talking about that guy, John the Baptist, that that popular prophet of the day, and wants him dead. She is portrayed here, however briefly, as an immoral, manipulative woman, who reminds us of Jezebel. Jezebel, the foreign wife of Ahab, who led him into all kinds of apostasy, who was behind a lot of his cruelty towards his own people, and who wanted the prophet Elijah dead. She was just their version of Jezebel. She was waiting watching, while while Herod keeps him safe, and she wants to get her clutches into John. And then comes Herod's birthday. John Calvin notes that uh, celebrating a birthday is a good thing, but we should also be uh, very aware of our propensity because of our sin to celebrate a little too much. And Herod was going to celebrate a little too much. Sin was going to break out greatly at this banquet. And he invited everyone who mattered in Galilee. 
If you were, this is like a who's who of who matters. You have the nobles, the political people that matter. You have the military commanders that matter. And you have the leading men of Galilee, which probably refers to the rich businessmen of Galilee. And so you have the political sector, the military sector, and the business sector, the most important people gathered together to celebrate the birthday of Herod Antipas. And there's going to be lots of wine and lots of chicanery that takes place. It's into the midst of this that Herodias sends her daughter Salome. Think of that for a moment. She is Herod's stepdaughter. But that's not all. She's also his grand uh, she's yeah, his grandniece. Uh, she's also his cousin. She's probably about 14. And her mother sends her into a room full of drunken men to dance. This is not a ballet recital. Okay? Herod and his drunken friends were pleased, it says, by her dance. So pleased, in fact, that he makes this outrageous offer, which is backed up with his oaths. Up to half my kingdom, ask, and it is yours. And that's when he's saddened to hear the words that come from her mouth, the head of John the Baptist on a platter. What are we to think of this? Why is this here? Yeah, similar perverse and powerful and cruel people were, you know, were Caesars in Rome. Uh, but similarly, the righteous followers of Jesus provoke a perverse world. And instead of dealing with the sin, uh, they try to kill the messenger. Uh, this is here because Mark wants the Christians in Rome to understand that being a faithful follower of Jesus Christ does not mean your best life now. It might mean you end up in prison. It might mean that you lose your head. It may not mean those things, but it might mean those things. He wants us to understand that. It's similar (coughs) to Paul writing to his young protege, Timothy, and he says to him in 2 Timothy 3, right before that great passage on, on Scripture, he writes, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. While evil people and impostors will go from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. Paul needed Timothy to understand that if he wants to be serious about Jesus, that if he wants to be faithful to Christ, if he wants to be a godly man, he's going to brush up against an ungodly society and there might be a price to be paid. And that is what Mark is trying to tell 
the Christians in Rome. You might have to pay a price for being a godly person because you're being a godly person in an ungodly world. We are also followers of Jesus in an increasingly perverse, ungodly world, and we too should perhaps expect persecution. Not long for it, not invite it, not run to it, but expect that it may come if we're faithful to Him. And so the message of Jesus provokes a perverse world to persecute Christians. But some of us might ask, why did it take Herod so long to kill John? We see here from the text that Herod had been, uh, who had sent and seized John and bound him in prison. Why didn't he just send a squad of men to slaughter him? You know, maybe not do it in public. Uh, maybe do it in his sleep, something like that. Uh, but no, he has them arrested and he has them thrown in prison which is where you usually kept the political prisoners that you didn't want to kill, or you had criminals that were, were awaiting trial, which would then usually result in their execution. We see that Herod Antipas, first off, is stopping John from stirring up the people against him. Okay? He's a good Herod. He wants to keep his, his power. He wants to keep his office. And John is making life difficult for him because he's telling everyone about what a wicked man that he is, and so he wants to silence that. And so that's part of why he has him arrested. He did not want to lose power. But he is also doing this to protect John because Herodias wants him dead. Seems strange that he would want to protect him. But Mark gives us the clue here. Herod feared John. Not in a positive way, in a negative way. But still, he did not want to kill John. Herod knew that John was in fact a righteous and holy man. Murdering him would be going a place too far. It was farther than Herod normally was wanting to go. He just wanted John to stop talking about his perversion and sin. That's all he wanted. But we see in the midst of this that Herod would not repent of his sin. He's torn. He's also refusing to to kill John. And so there's a sense in which he is a double-minded man. He doesn't want to kill the messenger yet, but neither does he want to listen to the message. He doesn't want to obey the message. He would continue to listen to John. We don't know if he went down to the dungeon to, to hear John, or if he had John brought up periodically to, to talk to him in his court. But we said, we, he, Mark lets us know that when he heard him, this was an ongoing thing for a while, he was greatly perplexed, and yet he heard him gladly. And so uh, there's a sense in which while Herod is excited and interested and wants to hear John. He has no idea what in the world John is talking about. 
John's talking about this Messiah. John's talking about this kingdom. And he is completely at a loss to understand what in the world John the Baptist is talking about. And yet he's attracted to John the Baptist. And so like Felix, who kept having Paul speak to him, Herod would continue to meet with John. Doesn't understand, but still sees something there. His lust, his perversion, had created chaos within the kingdom. It threatened war because, you know, the family of the princess that he sent back, not so happy. It threatens a loss of his power. And yet instead of repenting, Herod persists in his sin. And it was, in fact, his refusal to repent that gave Herodias time to find a lever in Herod's life to kill him. And that lever was initially his lust. This time directed towards her daughter, his stepdaughter. But also under that perversion was pride. Uh, That Herod refused to lose face in front of the elite of Galilee. He would rather have a man killed than say he was wrong. To say that my promise, that is one I cannot complete. I could not bring to pass. You asked for too much, Salome. He couldn't say that. He'd rather kill John than lose face, than lose power. It's similar to Pilate, who preferred to kill Jesus than to lose face and lose power if the Sanhedrin reported him to Rome. What's one more life? So they thought. Later, Herod would question Jesus seemingly toying with the man he had longed to meet with, uh, really displaying the folly of his heart in many ways. But Jesus had no answers for Herod. It was too late for that. And so we see that delayed repentance is often the shipwreck of a soul. One of my old friends, to illustrate this, shared his testimony, uh, which included um, promiscuity in his teen years. And he was working with youth, and one of them was considering promiscuity, fornication. And the, the youth brought up his past. Well, you repented. And to which my friend wisely said at that moment, How do you know you will? We have Herod, who doesn't repent. And it made shipwreck of his soul. How does this sordid affair, with all of its palace intrigue and everything else, how does this connect with Jesus? 
Well, we see in part that the improper punishment and execution of John foreshadows uh, the unjust death of Jesus that is going to come at the end of this gospel. John, just like many of the prophets who were before him, perished at the hands of a wicked and perverse ruler. And so we find things like the end of Hebrews chapter 11, the hall of faith. Uh, All of those people that were mentioned there, uh, a lot of them that were wandering in the desert, uh, those that were killed and imprisoned and beaten and refused to give up, those are often prophets of God like John. So John, like many of the prophets before him, perished at the hands of wicked and perverse rulers. Herodias found John more distasteful than her sin. And his blood, similar to the blood of Abel from Genesis 2, cries out, guilty. 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 You've killed an innocent man. You've killed a righteous man. You've killed a holy man. Guilty. 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 The Pharisees and the Sadducees would find Jesus more distasteful to them than Rome's perverse power. They knew whom they were appealing to. They knew, they knew the, the, the people that they wanted to stay in, in, in contact with in order to get rid of Jesus. It's interesting to me that in Hebrews 12, verse 24, it says, talking about Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant in His blood, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. It doesn't speak guilty, guilty, guilty. It speaks forgiveness, forgiveness, forgiveness. You see, wicked kings kill the righteous. That's the way of the world. That's the way of a fallen world. Wicked kings kill the righteous. But we see instead with Jesus that the true Son of God, not the pretender Son of God who was in Rome, the true Son of God willingly died for the wicked. Not killing the righteous, dying for the wicked. He's completely different than these pretenders who rule in Rome. The blood of Jesus offers this better word to the ones who are guilty and want to find freedom. Mark wants the audience that reads this book to know, these Christians to know, that the condemning words uh, by perverse power structures which they might hear are not the final word. Jesus is going to have the final word. And He's going to turn everything upside down. The righteous that are killed by them will be declared righteous and have everlasting life. And the wicked people who thought they could control everyone else will hear the verdict of condemned. Don't worry. We have politicians who condemn those who actually want to uh, adhere to a biblical worldview, a, a biblical sense of morality, of right and wrong. There's plenty of them. 
And that's largely because these politicians don't want to live a godly life. They're thinking of just being in power. We see quite the contrast with Jesus who comes to rescue us from our own perversity, our own addiction to power, our own expediency. And we all have it. It may not look as bad as one of the Herods. It may not look as bad as one of the Caesars. It may not look as bad as one of these people in the news. But we all have it. Because we are all sinners. And we need to be rescued. And there's only one who can rescue us. And that is the Lamb of God who went upon the cross, and that is Jesus, whose blood can take away our sin, whose blood can purify us from our unrighteousness, whose blood can set us free from our addiction to power, from our addiction to expediency, from our addiction to our perversity. And so, brothers and sisters, uh, if you have past sin sort of like the Herods, and some of us do, that sin should not cripple us. That sin should humble us, but it should not cripple us. And as ones who have understood the, the reality of pardon and the reality of the power of the Holy Spirit and pure, beginning to purify us so that we say no to those temptations, we, we now should be humble as we offer pardon and mercy to other people who are caught in those sins that so easily entangle. Jesus begins to teach us to say no, as Paul says to Titus in chapter 2. He begins to teach us to say no to the wicked desires uh, that are still resident in our hearts. And so, the better blood of Jesus speaks a message of grace, not a message of condemnation. And the people of Rome needed to hear that because they were hearing the words of condemnation from their politicians and their executioners. Well, the Carter Cash story ended well after nearly a decade of divorce and drug abuse. In 1968, they were married. They stayed married until her death 35 years later. They seem to have finally gotten the Christianity that they knew of their childhood and sang of in some of their songs. They were broken by their sin and came to a Redeemer. And it's interesting to me that Johnny himself would die just four months after June. But instead of hitting bottom and crying out for mercy, Herod, on the other hand, just grew harder. As we see, he mocks Jesus when he finally meets him. Herod's lust would end up costing him a kingdom when the angry Nabataean king next door finally attacked and defeated him in A.D. 36. 
His pride still intact, Herod travels to Rome to meet with Caligula in an attempt to be named king. And instead, he and Herodias together are sent to Gaul in exile. Destitute. He fell into the burning ring of fire. And instead of being purified like Johnny and June, he and Herodias were consumed and destroyed. Hard people like that often take their guilt out on God's people. When we suffer, let us follow the example of Jesus who entrusted himself himself into the hands of the one who not just created him, but who would raise him from the dead and would make him the judge of all mankind. While an earthly authority may condemn us, let us take great hope in the fact that the eternal authority will raise us up, declare us justified, and invite us to sit with him forever. I want to pray. Father, this is an ordinary temptation, not a special temptation. It's magnified in powerful people, but we all experience this to some degree or another. And Father, let not our dependence lag, or our, our repentance rather lag. Help us to cling to Jesus, who alone can rescue us from our own sin, our own guilt, our own shame. And as He makes us godly and as we speak boldly, help us to trust Him as we experience persecution like John and Jesus did, and like so many before them and so many after them. Help us to trust when our faith becomes inconvenient, when our faith uh, becomes dangerous. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.